You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, I gotta be honest, uh, I'm feeling some trepidation about this week's show. Why is that, Chad? Well, just to clue in the kids at home, Mm -hmm. right before we started recording, you turned to me and said that you have a surprise for me. That's right. That you were gonna spring on me live on the air. And I asked you if it was a good surprise or the wheel around and kick me in the nuts kind of surprise. And you said that it is somewhere in the middle. That's true. I'd say that's accurate. I'm not going to kick you in the nuts. But I don't know that you would describe this as a good surprise. Okay. Uh, do you want to do that now? Or or do I want to keep you guessing? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You remember, Chad... The last couple weeks, I've kind of thrown out there the idea that, hey, you know what we should do is we should do another CME drinking challenge, and we should do it to one of the Affliction events, and we should do it and really do it up like it's 2008 or nine all over again. I'm familiar with this plan. Do you remember your tepid reaction to this suggestion? I don't need to remember it because I'm redoing it right now. Well, I have decided that I'm done with your him and hawn. And I am announcing here today, here's what we're doing. This will be the first ever CME Patreon pledge drive. Okay. Now, you know what we're sitting at right now as to, in terms of the, the Patreon? Uh, 715. 730 patrons. Okay, that's pretty good. Now, that's a good number. That's a great number. I'm not going to lie to you. That's, that's a number that I'm, I'm humbled by on a daily basis. We don't deserve that number. No. Maybe no one deserves that number. Here's what I'm going to say to you right now. Okay. Is this the surprise part? When that number hits 900 patrons. Okay. CME drinking challenge to affliction day of reckoning. Oh my God. Day of reckoning. So chosen because this Chad Dundas will be your day of reckoning. And you know what we're going to do? Well, what are we going to do? Not only are we going to find some, uh, 2009-ish alcohol-appropriate choices. Uh I'm sure our guy Danny Downs would be happy to help us with that. Okay. We're also both going to wear clothing choices that Uh really capture the era. This might require you to buy all new jeans. Will those jeans be sparkly enough that you can go jogging at night in them? Possibly. Okay. This, Chad Dundas, you and I will commit to here today in a blood-packed 900 patrons Affliction Day of Reckoning. Is that the surprise? That is the surprise. You know what? I feel okay about it because there's no way we get to 900 patrons. See, you think that. But there's, I know there's some people out there right now listening to the sound of my voice. And they're thinking, you know what? Watching Affliction Day of Reckoning, that sounds kind of fun. Watching, that's the one where Fedor fought Andre Arlovsky. Both of them kind of at the height of their powers. That's also the one where Josh Barnett fought Gilbert Ivel, Vitor Belfort. Fought Matt Linland, uh, Renato Babaluso Brawl versus Sokuju back in the day when that was a thing. Oh, yeah. Sokuju. They're I remember also, that dude. They're also going to remember, man, remember last time when they did the, the 
CME drinking challenge, and Chad had to show up with his own gallon of water just to try to fend off the impending hangover? Yeah. Remember how these things, every time Chad does it, seems like it brings him to death's doorstep? Yep, that's that's a fact. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be fun to force Chad into a day of reckoning? And there's people out there, just like on those NPR pledge drives, they tell him, you know what? You enjoy this programming all the time. You can help us make it possible. Those people, they can be that solution. They can be that change in the world to bring you to death's doorstep and enjoy some fun affliction day of reckoning times. I mean, there are aspects of this plan that I'm excited about. Yeah. And then there are aspects about it that I am not quite as excited about. And see, that's part of what makes me 100% excited about it. And I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm going to go ahead and just put it out of my mind until we get to like 800 patrons. Okay. Which I don't think can happen. I think we are right. We're right at the, at the, at the high end of our carrying capacity right now. I think there's a lot of people out there who are going, you know what? I enjoy the CME for free every week. And I have possibly for years. And being a patron of this podcast would help keep it ad free. Uh-huh. Help keep it truly independent. So it's two guys just chopping it up, talking about MMA like they would talk to you about it if you, you know, encountered them in a local watering hole. And now's my opportunity to really chip in, buy into the system, become a part of the team, and maybe kill Chad Dundas to alcohol poison. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, that's uh, how you resist that. That does seem irresistible for uh-huh. everyone who is not me. You know what, though? I'm going to do you one better. I think we should think of some other stuff. I think okay. we should uh, we should go whole hog and think of some Patreon rewards that, in addition to murdering me via old age slash al- slash alcohol poisoning, I've got some ideas on this one. I got some on the back burner. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Also, I'm just saying, did you know that at Affliction Day of Reckoning on uh, January 24th, 2009, Paul Buentello fought Baby Fedor, Kirill Sedilnikov. Somebody learned. You don't fear Paul Buentello. You, you fear the consequences. You fear the consequences. Well, it's, you know what? It's going to be good to check in with Buentello. I'm excited. That's one of the aspects of this plan that I am excited about. And it's early on in the evening, so you might actually remember that part. We got music this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, John Jones's return to the cage is imminent, and absolutely no one is surprised. He appears to be going about it in the most John Jones way possible. And in round number two, why does every Conor McGregor press conference turn into a lecture on geopolitics by a guy who has clearly only read the push notifications? And in round number three, there's good news and bad news about Bellator 206 this weekend. The good news is... We finally figured out how to pronounce DAZN. That blew my mind right there. I had no idea. I've been saying DAZN. The bad news? You gotta have DAZN to watch Bellator 206. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Jay, we already got a a comment here from uh, our guy Cole Bratcher watching the live stream. And he remarks, I almost feel sorry for Chad, but I don't. See, that's kind of how I feel. God damn it. But I'm mostly excited. First question this week comes to us from our guy, Curtis Bouchard, who writes, Do you think Tiago Santos could become a capital G guy in the wasteland that is the light heavyweight division? You know, you know what I like about this question? Straight to the point. Yeah. He's not hemming and hawing, giving us a fat paragraph 
He's just asking Tiago Santos, capital G guy up there at 205 pounds after he goes out and has a pretty fun fight, I got to say, in the main event of UFC Sao Paulo against Eric Anders, your boy. Your boy, Eric Anders. And in this one, your boy came out on the short end of things, despite despite the fact that uh, he comes in as a short notice replacement here uh, and has some bright moments. Both guys got to do their stuff in this in this fight, but he ends up getting finished TKO there right at the end of the third round, just before the championship rounds were about to kick off. Gets called off between rounds, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit more coming up here. But Ben, what was your impression here of uh, Tiago Santos, who is uh, he's really established himself at this point after a long UFC career as kind of a, a guy who's fun to watch, has he not? Yeah, uh, I also think, though, that it would it would be a big help to him and also to me in keeping everybody straight if we all just could get on board with the Mahetta, the the sledgehammer. Yeah. He's got it tattooed on his damn chest. He sure does. Thiago Santos sounds like just a the Brazilian creative fighter. Yes. Like it just it sounds like there might be 15 Thiago Santoses in the UFC right now. If you told me that was true, I would believe you. Yeah. So that would actually help him. As far as if he is a capital G guy. Again, I appreciate what Curtis Bouchard is saying here in the wasteland of the light heavyweight division. Right. But I also wonder what that means because are we saying a capital G guy in that he has a chance to become one of the three guys who matters at any point in the light heavyweight division? Because I'm skeptical about that. Uh, Because while we we have recognized that there is not a deep talent pool there, the top, the very sliver of the top is still really fucking good. It's just that then there's a major drop-off. He has the potential to be somebody who matters within that drop-off zone, but he also has some, let's say, some gaps that even this fight, uh, even against a guy who took it on short notice and just fought like a month ago, and clearly that caught up to him, even he was able to exploit some of those gaps before, you know, the the circumstances of the bout seemed to grab him around the neck and throw him down face-first on the mat. Yeah, uh, here's what I think about Tiago Santos. I think that he can become a guy in terms of, hey, we like to f- watch this guy fight. He brings in a, an aggressive and uh, crowd-pleasing style to the table, especially if you're going to have him fight down there in Brazil, where every time he throws one of them bungalows, the whole crowd oohs and ahs like they just watched Babe Ruth go yard, hit a baseball about 500 feet. Uh, I think that that plays well to his strengths. I think that he's a recognizable guy now that he's got the sledgehammer tattooed on his chest, which frankly, as far as giant weaponry tattooed on your chest in MMA is maybe the best giant weapon tattooed across someone's chest in MMA. That we know of. That we know of. It's better than the sword. Okay. Let's just put it that way. You're you're saying better than Brock Lesnar's sword? It's better than the sword that Brock Lesnar has tattooed on his chest. How about the... uh the gun on Valentina Shevchenko's hip. That's also okay. Not across her chest, but so I wasn't really considering it in this category. But it's a quick fire position. Yeah, no, she's got it down there where she might pull it out. Uh, I had not thought of this, but doesn't uh, Cody Garbs also have a a pistol or something tattooed on on him in a way that looks like maybe it's... He's got... You could convince me that he has a lot of stuff tattooed on him. All right. If you were like, he has a mace tattooed on him, (laughs) I believe it. But we digress. Here's what I think is maybe the limiting... One of the limiting factors about Tiago Santos. I agree with what you have already said. This is a dude that comes out there to throw them bungalows, but he's going to leave some gaps. The other thing I will say, six foot two, 203.7 pounds. 
That's a big dude, but that ain't John Jones big. You're saying that's a guy in need of a cruiserweight division? A cruiserweight division is where the sledgehammer could really start doing some pounding. Is that that came out wrong? Yeah, it's not how I got to say. Kind of like the back cover of a porn. Next question this week comes to us from Caden Wilson, who writes: "I'm gallivanting through the post UFC fight night something Twitter feed on a Sunday night at a reasonable time in New Zealand because the UFC obviously caters to the two key demographics of Vegas and Kiwis. And I notice once again Mark Goddard has actually provided the shit eating wild people of MMA an explanation of his decision." Can we please discourse the value of having refs like Mark and Big John who take the time to justify their calls as opposed to the silence that we often get? Uh, so here's where we talk about the end of the Tiago Santos versus Eric Anders fight, uh, where near the end of round three, Ben, Eric Anders is, he's already had his bell rung a couple of times. He's had some stiff body kicks from Tiago Santos. He's out there uh, digging for a damn takedown to save his life. Yeah. And this is one of those weird occurrences where Tiago Santos turns to the side and just kind of like starts punishing him via elbows, which are nasty. And the round basically ends. Eric Anders slumps down uh, at the feet of referee Mark Goddard. And then uh, a cut man and his corner guy come into the cage. They try to pick him up. He falls down because it's MMA. They try to pick him up again. (laughs) (laughs) He falls down again. And at that point, Mark Goddard uh, steps in to wave it off. Now, the controversy, I believe, comes from... Uh, Kevin Lee, UFC lightweight Kevin Lee, who took to Twitter after the fight to call out Mark Goddard uh, for a stoppage where he replaced the mouthpiece of Eric Anders and then like did a restart, which are always awkward. Yeah. Tried to get him back in the same position, but at least Kevin Lee felt like uh, Goddard had put the fighters in a, a position that was disadvantageous to your boy. And uh, he felt like the restart had been in the wrong position. Yeah. Like the, I think Kevin Lee was saying that Goddard put Eric Anders in a position where he, Tiago Santos could, uh, could punish him better and further. And then Goddard like uh, replied several times. He's, he's put uh, you know, a, a Twitter thread out there where he explained his reasoning in the fight. Uh, I didn't necessarily have a problem with any of the referee stuff that happened in this fight. Uh, I thought it was, it was, uh, admirable for Goddard to step in and call off the fight. The second time Eric Anders like drops like a bag of laundry. Well, yeah, the second the time cage. you got to, right? I mean, that has MMA, that, man, that you got to f- wait for the second time. I feel guess. of like where your buddies are telling the cops, no, he's fine. We're just, he's just going home. He's he, he got food poisoning. And the first time you fall down, maybe they could get away with it. But the second time the cops like, all right, wait, hold up here. I'm gonna have to see some IDs. Uh, yeah. So like, I'm, I thought my Mark Goddard did a pretty good job here at the end. I didn't necessarily see anything wrong with the, the replacement during the restart, but I also didn't, I wasn't paying that close of attention to that particular aspect of it. I might yeah. have to rewatch it, but uh, I'm going to say yes, that I, I think it's kind of awesome that a guy like Mark Goddard appears to care about his job so much and that he takes the time to publicly kind of uh, explain and justify what he's done out there in the cage. It's like a kind of transparency that I think uh, is good for a referee in mixed martial arts. Yeah. And I think just in general, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Mark Goddard is one of the best referees we have working right now. And I like that we get that kind of insight into like, here's what he's thinking. He's willing to have the conversation being just open to doing that. It's a good and a bad thing though. I remember talking to the UFC matchmakers back when Joe Silva was one of the matchmakers and he was saying how he cannot allow himself to either have social media or to like get on MMA message boards and 
start listening to what people have to say because he, he will find it really difficult to stop himself from arguing with them. And once you get pulled into that, you're going to spend your whole day doing it. Yeah. And I can understand how a lot of refs might feel that way. Like, hey, I did what I did. I'll let my work speak for itself. I don't want to sit here and argue with you guys all day about it because otherwise it'll just drive me crazy and I won't want to do anything. I could totally understand if a ref adopted that position. I do appreciate Mark Goddard being willing to have this dialogue back and forth with people about it. I also think there's going to be times where you get into a situation where you're maybe explaining stuff that you should just let rest. I do wonder about the aspect about, well, two things about the way this fight ended. For one thing, I always am a little perplexed when there's this urgency to replace the mouthpiece because you lost your mouthpiece. Yeah. Like that was kind of on you. Yeah. I don't like, I can understand when you pick up the mouthpiece and you wait for like a natural break in the action where they're standing there, they're throwing at each other. Maybe they take a step back and you're not interrupting anything. But if they're still like in any kind of grappling posture, I just don't understand the rush to replace the mouthpiece. Right. I feel like we could do without it there. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I, I, when that happened in the fight, it crossed my mind briefly. I was like, whoa, kind of, this is kind of an awkward time to do that. Uh, So I agree with you. Uh, it does seem like they, you know, you could wait for the end of the round, or you could wait for a a, a more organic time to to step in and put the mouthpiece in. But now we're just like we're talking about semantics. True, we basically. are. The other thing is, imagine the alternate universe in which that round ends just like it did. Uh, your boy Eric Anders rolls over and collapses the way he did. Yeah. But imagine that he collapses in his own corner. Because if you notice, like, right, he's the right stool, in front of Tiago Santos's yeah, corner. Yeah, the stool where this comes happens. out, and for a second, you're like, "Wait a minute, is that his stool, or is he going to have to go all the way across the cage?" And it turns out he's going to have to go all the way across the cage, and he's not going to make it. If that was his stool, would they have been able to get him up on that? And then does the fight continue even when it probably, definitely shouldn't? Yeah, I don't have an answer for that at all. Uh, he did, like, if you're Eric Anders, he he collapsed in what was the worst possible place because. That looks like an awfully big cage when uh, when you're in that kind of condition. So, I mean, thank God, I guess that it worked out like it did and that we didn't uh, see Eric Anders sent out there again. Uh, I did want to talk about this briefly. We didn't talk about it for the first question, Ben, but what what to make of your boy at this point, Eric Anders? He's still just 11 and 2, uh, obviously super athletic. Uh, did you know he played college football? I've heard that a time or yeah. two. Uh, yeah. but, but I think because of that athleticism and maybe also because of the college football pedigree is one of these guys who shows up in the UFC with, with, you know, a handful of fights. He made his, his UFC debut when he only had eight pro fights and now has advanced to 11 and two. So still pretty green out there and yet fighting these hitters That's in, right. in Tiago Santos. Uh, he's one and two in his last three fights, but the Lyoto Machida split decision loss back in February. Some people at least thought uh, Anders should have got the nod there. And now he's got this uh, TKO uh, loss to Tiago Santos where, like, I actually think Anders afforded himself fairly well considering all the circumstances. But the guy's 31 years old. Uh, you know, like I said, he still seems like he's a little green out there with only 13 pro fights. How do you think of your boy, who I guess both stepped up on short notice and up a weight class to light heavyweight, uh, albeit to fight another middleweight who was also going up to 205 here? Yeah, I wondered about this afterwards if it was a case of kind of slaughtering the hog before before the feast, basically, before you're really going to get anything out okay. of it. I mean, technically, you do want to slaughter the hog before the okay. feast. Be- but be- I mean, well before the feast. Before the, before before the hog, the hog, is, hog is ready. Up. Yeah. yeah, because... 
Well, I mean, maybe the best thing you can say about it is nobody watched this shit, probably. Yeah. The UFC Sao Paulo fight night just did not have a whole lot going for it and it had like a later start time to the main card. If people were going to skip a UFC, by God, skip this one. Uh, so maybe nobody even noticed. But it did seem like, okay, you got this athletic prospect. Uh, maybe you can do something with him. And instead, you take him on short notice a month after he just fought. There, This was a tough, tough assignment for him. And I mean, on one hand, credit to him for stepping up and accepting it. On the other hand, it did seem a little bit like the UFC's show must go on desperation might have hurt its future prospects. Like you might just be, you know, mortgaging tomorrow for the sake of saving a fight card today. That doesn't really matter in the end. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, and that's one of the many downfalls of having this sort of like a nonstop, relentless meat grinder of a schedule. Like you got to, you got to break a few eggs, which is kind of a uh, an unfortunate analogy, I think, though maybe not as unfortunate as slaughtering a hog. Listen, let's just get all the bad analogies we can out on the table. All of the one. like bad breakfast related analogies. Yeah. All right. Next gotta, question. When you hear the bacon sizzling, somebody better go call the mailman. I don't know what. As my uh, journalism dean used to say, Jerry Brown, a fine Southern man, he would like to tell us, you got to put the hay down where the cows can get it. What's that even in reference to? I'm just going to let you think about it for a while. (laughs) Next question this week comes to us from Dan Brown, who I assume is best-selling author, Dan Brown. Yeah. Good Uh, to hear from him. Da Vinci Code Mm -hmm. author. My dearest dudes, ex-champy and Chevy Chanks are doing the damn Wow. (laughs) Is that what we're doing with Valentino Shevchenko now? Because I am into it. Yes, please. Chevy Chanks. Ex-champy and Chevy Chanks are doing the damn thing for the strap. Fuck yes. This feels like a Montano traded up. Uh, this fight feels like a Montano traded up. As I, re- as I search my heart's brain to find empathy for Nico's belt vanishing into the ether, I come up empty. The UFC has successfully uh, taught me belts and ranking- rankings mean nothing, so fuck it. Let's just watch fun fights and not take the sport element too seriously. Discourse, Yajajic versus Shevchenko. See, this is why it pays to have a best-selling author writing in listener mail. You're right. And I think we're all on board with the fuck yes aspect of this, are we yeah, not? Yeah, yeah. No, this is a good a good thing to do here. And it also seems like the UFC may be just deciding, like, you know what? We really wanted to have Valentina Shevchenko, Chevy Chanks. We wanted her involved in this 125-pound bout. She, the other person could be kind of TBA. As far as we're concerned. In some ways, although Yajajic is probably the person you want in that spot, right? It felt like Montano versus Shevchenko was probably uh, just to tee up a championship fight between Shevchenko and Yajajic. Uh, so it seems like we, the UFC has just decided to skip a damn step. Right, yeah. Like, let's just cut to the thing we wanted to do anyway. Well, and as far as the searching your heart's brain to find some empathy for Nico Montano in that whole situation, I think you can still recognize that it was in many ways a raw deal for her. For sure. But that doesn't prevent us from admitting that I want to see Chevy Chanks an ex-champy. Right. What do we think about Joanna Yajajic here moving up to women's flyweight? Uh, she obviously had the back-to-back losses to Rose Nama Yunus, uh, and then she gets off the schneid by beating Tisha Torres in July uh, at Alvarez versus Poirier too. Uh, we had long thought that she might step up and wait. It was, uh, it was long rumored that that was a thing that she might do here. We have it. Uh, 
I guess you could say she's cutting the line, although I'm not sure that the 125-pound line exists, yeah, really. Yeah, it's not much of a line. Uh, what do you think her fortunes are there, Ben, considering you know the fighting style that she has where she wards off the takedowns and kind of picks people apart on the feet? Do you think that plays at the higher weight class? Do you think she could be better there? Uh, and how do you think she matches up with, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say her stylistic mirror, but like another... Uh, talented striker in, in Valentina Shevchenko. Right, and somebody who she had some trouble against uh, in, right. in kickboxing bouts. Um, I think that Shevchenko is going to be uh, a sizable favorite here, and with good reason. I think that uh, Yuena Janjacek, as good as she is, and as good as she is at the things that she does, I don't see that playing super well against Valentina Shevchenko. I mean, a, a bigger fighter who... Uh, can stand there and trade with you, is not going to be significantly outworked by you. I think that that's a tough night of work for you, Annie and Jacek. Not saying that she it's inconceivable for her to win it. I could I could maybe see her pulling off the fight, but I would see it as an upset victory and a, a, a big moment in her career if she could pull off that. Like that would be a, a major kind of championship comeback for her to go out there and beat Shevchenko. That right now is the announced main event of UFC 231. That goes down Saturday, December 8th at the Scotiabank Arena over there in Toronto. Uh, let's do one more. I got time for one more here. This one from Slick Williams, who writes, Latest retired, Dunham retired, and the former monster probably should definitely hang them up. Feels strange watching a sport for so long. You see every step of the rise and fall. I remember when Dunham was an unbeaten prospect who got screwed by the judges against Sean Shirk. I remember uh, Latus's wild fight against Nate Marquardt. I remember when Henan Barral's fighting prowess was only surpassed by his sensual victory dances. Time is fucking cruel. Discourse the quiet legacy these men left, if any at all. So, Ben, uh, like this is, I think, a good question to answer. I think uh, probably it doesn't take a genius to say that Hanan Barral is probably the of this trio, the, the fighter that people will remember the best, obviously being the... Uh, the UFC bantamweight champion. Uh, but what about Talis Latus and Evan Dunham, both of whom were, uh, I mean, I guess you could say real solid journeymen without being, without trying to be like insulting. I feel like right. that's actually a compliment. Like Evan Dunham and Talis Latus, both super tough guys who are around for a long time could give anybody that they fought trouble and yet kind of never broke out at the championship level. Right. And, but like guys like Evan Dunham, one of those guys who made it to the UFC with, fewer than 10 pro fights on yeah. his uh, record and then stayed there the entire time, the rest of his career, you know, and was just kind of like a fixture that you could count on. Evan Dunham's going to be around a few times a year, uh, always going to show up, give somebody a tough night of work. Uh, and it does seem a little bit not cruel, just in the inexorable March of time sense, although that is cruel to us all in different ways, but also cruel in that, you know, if you put in, 10 years or something, uh, you know, seven or eight years as the utility outfielder for the Cleveland Indians, there will at least be some people, there will at least be the, you know, the Cleveland Indians fans will remember you and be like, okay, I remember that guy. He right. was like an essential part of this era of following the team, even if it was not a great era for the team itself. But I always will remember him and, you know, remember his contributions. And But in fighting, it doesn't really work like that. Like, if you are a middle-of-the-pack, solid, all-around dude, you know, your teammates remember you. Maybe some hard, hardcore people kind of remember you. But otherwise, it doesn't really have that same, like, 
I don't want to say nostalgia, but same like fondness for the role players that other sports can have. Yeah. Talos Latest will probably best be remembered uh, for UFC 97, his fight against Anderson Silva, which obviously he lost by unanimous decision, but like came during that time uh, when Anderson Silva delivered a couple of stinkers. Yeah. And obviously made UFC brass super mad. Talos Latest helped make Chael Stone impossible in a way. Well, that's a good way to put it. I'm sure he's, he would be uh, proud to learn that. Uh, you know, he kind of, he bounced out of the UFC not that long after, but then returned and like put together a sizable win streak here during, you know, from about 2010 to 2015 before what you might consider the latter stages of his career, uh, where he went three and five and got this win over the weekend over Hector Lombard, who was probably another guy that we could include in this discussion who has, uh, he's fallen on hard times himself here, Ben, he's lost six in a row. Feels like, I mean, I'm not looking at the the math right in front of me, but it feels like Hector Lombard's falling on hard times happen a lot more suddenly. Yes. Yes, it does. But speaking of sudden uh, declines, Hannon Burrell starts out his career 32-1-1 when he beats Uriah Faber there at UFC 169 uh, for his final successful title defense of the Bantamweight crown. Then he loses to TJ Dillashaw at UFC 173. And if you include that loss, he goes 2-6 since then yeah and not only the does he go two and six but like this fight especially you look at him and he just does not look like the same person he doesn't look like he has the same confidence he misses weight for one thing he shows up there he just doesn't look like he has the same uh speed or fluidity on the feet his best moments come when he's just able to take Andre Ewell down and and kind of exploit a grappling advantage but then he can't keep that up in the second and third round I mean he was it was kind to him, I think, to call this a split decision because it looked to me like he definitely lost the second and third rounds and looked bad doing it. And so you wonder, like, where do you, where do you what's what's wrong for one thing, and then where do you go from there? Yeah, and I mean, it might just be uh, cumulative, cumulative uh, like wear and tear on the body, being you know forty two fights deep at this point in an MMA career, despite the fact that the guy's only thirty one years old. Uh, there's got to be a uh, a point where the body is just sort of like says no moss to make a, a yeah. boxing reference. Well, and I understand what Slick Williams is saying here about time being fucking cruel. And there is something about fighting that the life cycle is so much shorter. It seems than in, than in other sports where you see just in a couple of years, it feels like you can go through the whole breadth of like human experience by following one specific fighter where you see that, that arc and it can happen really fast. It can happen over a span of many years, but it does, it makes you kind of appreciate like when other people are trying, you know, somebody gets the belt and they're truly trying to make the most of it, trying to maximize it. And you're like, well, hell yes, I can understand exactly why they would adopt that mentality because we've seen it with so many other people where you're on top for a minute, you know, you, you have a cup of coffee with the belt and then it's over. And that's if you're lucky, that's right. like a best case scenario. Um, so yeah, like it, it is cruel and, uh, I don't blame anybody for trying to maximize it when they can. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comaintevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on news and notes that we miss on all the days that we are not recording the podcast. We just added an audio feature to the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. Last week was the uh, 
the first week for that. Probably going to do more of that in the future. Probably not every week. We want to keep the kids guessing. That's right. But uh, You know what we should also think about doing uh, for Patreon subscribers? How about we got UFC 229 coming up, not this weekend, but next weekend, October, October 6th. 6th. Yep. Maybe Friday, October 5th would be a good morning for the Brunch of Champions where we get together, have some donuts, watch a live stream of the weigh-ins, and uh, just talk some shit. There you go. Let's do it. Uh, as of right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, speaking of the new audio feature in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, we talked a little bit about John Jones on Friday when the news broke that his return to the cage seems imminent with uh, the reduction of his suspension to, what was it, 15 months? That's right. That he, uh, he ended up totaling after meeting with an arbitrator uh, uh, surrounding his, his uh, USADA violation. Um, a couple of things of note here. We still don't know how the banned substance got into John Jones's system. He had USADA test a bunch of his dietary supplements. None of them really came up positive for the thing that was the, the steroid metabolite that was in his system. So we know that that was in his body. We don't know how it got there. But everyone seems satisfied at this point, especially... Uh, owing to John Jones's substantial, what was it? The substantial assistance. Substantial assistance is the official uh, term that USADA has used here, which caused him to to be gifted with a huge reduction in in his potential uh, suspension. Yeah, knocked off two and a half years. Two and a half years, which is uh, precious time if you are an athlete. So we think he's going to return to the cage here. Although, like I said about this being the most John Jones way for him to return to the cage. There's been a lot of speculation that the uh, substantial assistance required John Jones to basically uh, snitch on some folks, talk about what he knew about the uh, the steroid world in MMA, which, as you pointed out, is a weird way to go if uh, you continue to uh, profess your innocence. Yeah. And if you saw it as going to be like, we trust this guy. We don't think he took uh, steroids, but he knows some stuff about some people who did. So that's a weird way to go. Uh, it should be noted that John Jones's team appeared to go on uh, the Ariel Helwani show today and kind of... Uh, was it the Ariel show or the Luke Thomas MMA Was it Luke Thomas? I don't, I, I don't know. One of those. One of those shows. One of those other streaming shows that are out there. Uh, and uh, kind of say that people had jumped to the conclusion that John Jones had had informed uh, on some others, and they, they at least are going to deny that. Yeah. Although if you're also- John Jones, Ben, that this aspect of it... It's like in in keeping with what the people already think about you and yeah. also like kind of the worst outcome, at least for your like for your PR. Yeah. And I guess we will find out one way or another, won't we? Like if people there starts to become a if whole a, bunch of two- a strength and conditioning coach in the Albuquerque area. Right. Gets let out in cuffs or something? Yes, yeah. Then it's going to start to become pretty apparent uh, what, what exactly is going on there. There's... The problem is if you go out and you make the case, no, he's not actually doing any assisting, then it makes USADA look more bullshit. It makes it kind of look – remember when Chael Sonnen uh, went before the Nevada Commission or maybe it was California Commission, one of those about either his testosterone use. I think it was the testosterone use and not the the later human growth hormone use. Uh, But they were like, 
We would also like you to like be a consultant to help us with anti-doping matters. And he was like, sure, I'll do that. And it was like, what? Why? Why? Why did you decide to have the guy who you have just accused of uh, committing anti-doping violations as your anti-doping consultant? Uh, so it, you kind of can't have it both ways. Like people are already coming out of this thing going – we have more suspicions or more reservations about the USADA program as a result of how John Jones is treated here. Uh, like that maybe all are not equal under the USADA reign. And then if you're like, Oh yeah, he's not actually doing the thing that was responsible for the two and a half year reduction in potential suspension, then it makes it look even worse. Yeah. Uh, here's what I want to talk about today. Since we already sort of talked about the ins and outs of what's going on with the USADA suspension. How do how do you how are you thinking of John Jones right now in the context of this violation? Because we had, you know, some things have happened throughout the uh, throughout Jones's career. Obviously, he had the uh, the cocaine positive test. Uh, it was re- also revealed, by the way, in this uh, the notes of from this arbitrator that Jones had said that he continued to use cocaine throughout 2017, which is interesting to note. Uh, and then also said that they thought he had been. Uh, very careful when it came to like not accidentally contaminating himself with uh, his supplements, which I don't see how both those things can be true. I don't right. see you can out here snort and blow and then also being very careful about what you put into your body. Uh, in, in any case, like Jones had the cocaine violation. He had another instance that was blamed on a contaminated supplement. He had this test, which uh, was ultimately you know, like he tried to blame on a contaminated supplement. There was uh, at one point a, a medical uh, report that had him with pretty low testosterone levels in and around a fight. Uh, how are you thinking of John Jones in terms of this violation? Like, are you satisfied? Are we just going to move forward with John Jones's fighting career and and say like, there's, you know, no real evidence that this guy used performance enhancing drugs, or is it still a thing that makes you go? Hmm. Well, the more of them happen and the less you are able to explain them, the more you have to at least go. Hmm. When there was the the contaminated dick pill, at least then you could be like, here's the pill, here's where the guy, here's who he got it from, here's where that guy got it from, got their own, tested it, figured the story checks out. And then with this one, it's like the argument was basically nobody would be this stupid to dope in this way at this time. And beyond that, it was just like, hey, we're at a loss. And... And he had passed some other tests. We should yes. point out in yeah. fairness. He passed a Before bunch of other after. drug tests. Yeah. And so it is like I, I can't completely dismiss that defense. At the same time, not nearly as compelling as being able to say, here's the contaminated thing. And I think he he kind of suffers from a comparisons to other people who have gotten harsh sentences from USADA or at least had to battle USADA over and over again when they had pretty good cases to make that like they were the victim of accidental contamination or just like in Leota Machida's case, like just using a, a dietary supplement that may have no effect whatsoever. And so it felt like people are going to compare you through no fault of your own and find that this seems like some bullshit. But it seems like John Jones has always been the guy where he has been succeeding on natural talent in spite of all the other things he is doing to himself. And so it's hard, I or at least... It's not that hard for me to imagine that he is going out there and kind of recklessly throwing stuff in his body, not because he is trying to cheat, 
but just because that's clearly the guy he is. Like, yeah. he, he's not that careful. Yeah. Well, clearly the history of sport has taught us to be somewhat skeptical of uh, all of these, you know, excuses and stories about how athletes get performance enhancing drugs into their system. I'm pretty sure that Ben Johnson back in, what was it, 1984 when he was a sprinter in the Olympics and he tested positive for uh for steroids later said that a, a doctor had injected him with steroids without his knowledge, which you fast forward some 20 years and people are basically still making that Alistair same excuse. Alistair Overeem used right. that same one. Yeah. Uh, so I think you, at this point, especially since they were unable to locate a, the substance that put the, the, the steroid metabolite in John Jones's body, you got to kind of be a little bit skeptical. And then I guess it's up to you in your own mind to figure out how much that matters to you and how you're going to, you're going to think about it. But we think John Jones at this point carries on with his near peerless MMA career. It seems like we are trending toward maybe a meeting with Alexander Gustafson, although there hasn't really been any official confirmation of that. Both guys are kind of uh, sniping at each other a little bit on social media. It seems to be the fight that makes sense. Uh, ben, does it make sense to you? And how hype would you be to see that fight if it is indeed John Jones's return? Yes, and very hype. Okay. I think it makes sense in all ways because you're going to have Daniel Cormier fight Brock Lesnar because everybody wants to make a bunch of money and go yippee yippee. And you're going to do that for the heavyweight title. He's not going to defend the light heavyweight title in the meantime. That yeah. seems pretty obvious. You can't just sit on the light heavyweight title forever. As long as you got John Jones back, we wanted to see that John Jones Alexander Gustafson rematch anyway. Uh, it makes sense to have, make Daniel Cormier give up that title, have them fight for the, the vacant title, and you have yourselves two winners right there. Yeah, it's an interesting fight just because obviously Alexander Gustafson had pushed John Jones about as hard as anyone we had ever seen at UFC 165, even though Jones kind of rebounded. Uh, and won the unanimous decision there. And later in the wake of that, there were a lot of rumors out of his camp that he hadn't been training all that hard for Alexander Gustafson. I think a rematch is interesting because uh, that's kind of like Alexander Gustafson's claim to fame at this point. Yeah. And if we know anything about John Jones, it's that John Jones is going to be super mad about that, right? Like if John Jones has a rematch scheduled now with Alexander Gustafson, John Jones is going to do everything in his power to make sure that he goes out and proves to people. Yes. I am in a different league than Alexander Gustafson. The first one was a fluke or I didn't take it seriously or whatever, but I'm out here to smash fools in the first round. That's what I would expect. Uh, just knowing what we know about the mindset of John Jones, I think it will be very important to him to kind of make a statement in this return fight if that is a, his opponent. Yeah, well, yeah, and I think that it's compelling all the way around and you would actually be able to have the rare here's a fight for the vacant title situation where the winner could either way can plausibly claim to be the best light heavyweight in the world, which usually, you know, you take the belt off one guy and then have just two different people fight for it. You almost a hundred percent of the time cannot say that yeah. just because of the circumstances. Here's one where you can. Do you think that we see Daniel Cormier fight the winner of this fight? Or I mean, it had been assumed at least by me that Daniel Cormier would finish up his career with one more fight against John Jones. At this point, I'm starting to wonder if the Brock Lesnar fight is the end game for Daniel Cormier. What's your what's your uh, inkling at this point? Do you think that Cormier sticks around long enough to to fight the winner of this fight? It's tough to say because I think that it's one thing for him to tell himself right now, hey, I'm going to do this Brock Lesnar fight. I'm going to drive a truck full of money back to my house after it's over. And then I'm going to call it good because, you know, I'll, I'll have reached the end point I set out for myself. But... 
when they come knocking on your door and be like, how about another truckload uh, to fight the winner of John Jones versus Alexander Gustafson, especially if it's Jones. And, you know, you have that those two losses that Daniel Cormier, a super competitive guy, would like to avenge. I think it's going to be tough to say no to that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. I know we have something of a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you seen these? I saw them uh, from uh, Jason Cruz on Twitter. Yeah, me too. Uh, these screenshots from uh, Blue Dana White's deposition and the ongoing uh, MMA uh, FA kind of related uh, lawsuits here, the antitrust lawsuits yeah. uh, against the UFC paints a certain kind of picture about what's going on in Dana White's head. It sure does. Why don't you uh, read the first one? And okay. Then I will read the second one here. Uh, this is where he's being questioned here uh, by an attorney. Mr. White, I'm handing you what I've marked as exhibit 115. So I guess if you don't know, is it fair to say that as you sit here today, that even though you've received approximately nine or 10% of the now hundreds of millions of dollars of distributions that we've seen that you don't, you don't know how the company was paying for those distributions. Dana White's answer. I told you, I'm the fight genius. I'm the promotion genius. I told you that yesterday. That's what I do. It's the only thing I care about. And as long as I do the only thing I like and care about, the whole thing works. So the answer is no. <laughs> Dana White, the answer is no. Again, the question here was, you don't know how the company has been uh, affording to pay you, like where that money to pay you hundreds of millions of dollars, this this 9 or 10% of the hundreds of millions of dollars. You don't know where that money has been coming from, do you? And his answer was, I'm a genius. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? All right, here's my favorite. This is the attorney <laughs> continuing to question Dana White about uh, Zufa profits for 2009. He says, here's the attorney. Okay, and what was the amount of distributions that were made to you and the other owners of Zufa for the period ending December 31, 2009? Dana White's answer, $305,000. Question, are you sure that's correct? Answer, no. <laughs> Question, because if you look at, and then Dana White cuts in, it's wrong. Then the lawyer goes on. It says, if it's in thousands, right? So it would be 305 million. So basically, the different, Dana White says 305,000. He actually got, they had, the, the owners actually got paid 305 million. Dana White's response to that is, oh, awesome. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, uh, and later on in the same uh, line of questioning, uh, he asks, uh, okay, then you recently said after the WME acquisition that you have all the money you need, right? Correct. Okay, do you know how Zufa managed to make a $305 million distribution in, in 2010? Did it sell equity? Answer, ask Lorenzo. You fucking kidding me? That's from the genius right there. Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back with round number two. I sat there and I watched the entire UFC 229 press conference from uh, New York City on last Thursday. And you know what I came away thinking? I can't even guess. I came away thinking, my God, this fucking whiskey thing is really going to work, isn't it? Anybody else in yeah. MMA starts their own line of spirits. Anybody else. It's a disaster. Yeah. It's a terrible idea. It is meme fodder. 
It's a running gag for years afterwards. Conor McGregor does it, and it at first seems like it's going to go that way. And then he manages to use a press conference as an extended commercial. And people are really out here being like, where can I get Conor McGregor's whiskey? I was at a bar recently, and uh, my eye wandered over to the shelf to be like, is it going to start showing up here? Are we going to see? Is like, Where can I get my hands on a bottle of this whiskey? It's going to work. Yeah. I can't believe it. Well, it's kind of like a genius marketing crossover, right? I would say that about both Proper 12 and August McGregor, Conor McGregor's pending fashion line, right? But especially Proper Wait, 12. Hold on. Back up. What did you just say? August McGregor? He has yeah. a fashion line? Yeah. High-end, like, men's clothing, August McGregor. Why is it called August McGregor? I don't know. That's just the name of it, man. High-end men's fashion. Yeah. I believe like this. Like really tight pants? I believe the stuff he was wearing on stage during this press conference is from the August McGregor line. Like when he stepped up after the stare down, when he stepped up to have his picture taken, he was like, make sure you get get my shoes in because they're August McGregor. Like this, these will be coming out soon. Well, son of a bitch. It's genius because even if you don't like Conor McGregor, but if you, let's say you're a fight fan, but Conor McGregor's not your favorite guy you're probably still going to try the whiskey, right? Like, I mean, it's whiskey if, for if, one thing. If that's kind of in your wheelhouse, you're still going to be like, okay, I'm going to try the Conor McGregor whiskey. And if you're a person uh, who works a professional job and you got to have some nice shoes and you're also a fight fan, even if you don't like Conor McGregor, you probably still want to check out the shoes. And the whiskey seems reasonably priced from what I've seen. I hadn't, I hadn't looked at the price, but I'm not really all that surprised to hear it. Uh, but you're right. Uh, it does seem like at least one of those two uh, brand crossovers, brand expansions are going to work out. Uh, which, hey, man, good for Conor McGregor. Like we, as we discussed pretty recently, the guy's spending habits seem to be in line with his earning habits. So, all the money that guy can bring home for his burgeoning family. Now that we know he and D. Devlin are going to have a second child, more power to him. As far as I'm concerned. Well, and then he goes out there with a press conference, and he's doing all the things you expect. Yeah. And for one thing, like I for for better and worse, let's say. Right, sure. Well, that's the deal every single time. Yeah. Uh, Mark Raimondi, I believe, asked the first question at this press conference, didn't get all the way through the first question before Conor McGregor interrupted him to complain about how the fans weren't allowed in and that he didn't get what he wanted there. Which in retrospect, man, he was right. Like Yes, absolutely. As I will tell you this, as a professional journalist, when I started showing up to UFC press conferences, I thought it was so weird that fans were invited. Because, like, that's, you know, if you want to have a fan rally, that's fine. But, like, it's not really a press conference anymore if you start inviting fans in there. Like, you know, if you go to a college football post-game press conference after a game, the room is not full of yahoos yelling hook em horns, <laughs> right? Like, it's just the media and, the like, the people that they need to interview. So I thought that was real weird that the UFC did that. Uh, and if you want to, like, get deep in some conspiracy shit, you could question whether or not that they did it on purpose to like make sure that nothing of import ever happens at a press conference. But like, then you get this Conor McGregor, Habib Nurmagomedov press conference where there's no fans there. And it's real weird. Cause it's just quiet in there while Conor McGregor is up on stage running his shtick. Well, yeah. And a part of your brain, because we're so used to seeing this shtick, it's like seeing a sitcom where you're used to hearing the laugh track. And it's when it's removed, your brain kind of like automatically adds it. Right. Like he'll say something. And there's a part of me like that can almost hear the yahoos going, yeah, yeah, uh, because there were several lines where you're like, okay, that is a, a Conor McGregor line right there yeah. that's going to land with the yahoos, but they're not there. 
I hope that when the story of Conor McGregor is written after his career is over, that that he is is accurately remembered as a high volume trash talker. Because like when you read the like if you read a story about the press conference, you're going to get the highlights. Like Conor McGregor's best zinger is going to be in the story. Mm-hmm. But when you watch the full press conference, man, there's a lot of throwaway garbage in there. Also, you gotta you gotta run a lot of stuff up the flagpole. See who salutes it. You know? Yeah, he's casting a wide net. Let's say, like for instance, when. Uh he he might just throw in a a, a, a these nuts uh, remark. He just he might and he did. Yeah. In fact, uh, what do you make of when we launch into a weird geopolitical aside about the history of Dagestanis and Chechens and the whether you're showing the appropriate respect of Vladimir Putin or not? What? I mean, my take on it after watching it was that this is Conor McGregor's thing, right? Like he, like kind of like the the raptors in Jurassic Park always testing the fences to see if they're still electrified and never testing the same place twice. That this is kind of one of the things he excels at is yeah. that he is going to look around for your spot. And then based on your reaction, when he finds it, he's going to keep needling that spot to get at you. And it seemed like that's what he was doing here. And then maybe you got to work a little harder with a guy like Habib because – there's not a whole lot going on there, like as far as that you can see on his face. Yeah. And he like Conor McGregor has a weird habit of taking it to nationalism also. Remember, like he's yes. done this before. Oh, yeah. like, he basically did the same thing to Jose Aldo. So like it's not necessarily a surprise to see him broadly take on the political ins and outs of the caucus region. <laughs> but at the same time, like when it starts to happen, I'm sitting at home and I'm just like, oh, my God, we're going to do this. Really? And yet. Like, if you are trying to get in the head of Habib Nurmagomedov, which I have said in the past is a thing that I didn't think Conor McGregor would be able to do, that's the one way, maybe, that it's going to work. Because Maybe you could also talk about the Prophet Muhammad, if you want to really go that far. Yeah, and there were some weird moments at this press conference, uh, both where Conor McGregor tried to give the whiskey to Habib Nurmagomedov. It was his birthday. Because it was his birthday, and of course, and then when he refused to take it, telling him, "I bet you're a buzz at parties, you're right backwards, cunt." Yeah, which now there's a good line. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, there, I mean, like he's he's good at it, man. I, I I think I told the story on this show, but like when I interviewed the profile writer Chris Jones, who had written the Esquire profile about Conor McGregor, which was one of the first things where Conor McGregor really broke through in the mainstream because Chris Jones asked him almost as a throwaway question, like, how would you do against Floyd Mayweather? And Conor McGregor was like, I would choke him out immediately. But like Chris Jones, who's like a a really good profile writer and a guy who has interviewed almost everyone, uh, you know, like lots of celebrities, Justin Timberlake, et cetera, et cetera. He was super unnerved by the time he spent with Conor McGregor because he felt like Conor McGregor had done that to him. Like almost without even knowing it, like Conor McGregor picked up on Chris Jones's insecurities and like kind of like picked him apart because of it. And like Chris Jones told me that after that interview with Conor McGregor, he went home and like made a bunch of changes in his life because he felt like like he was so unnerved what? by his experience of being around Conor McGregor. What were the insecurities that he's that he's picking on? Like basically like being out of shape, like uh being a well like Conor McGregor like basically marching to the beat of his own drummer cuz this they were in New York kind of walking around and this was before Conor was really famous. But he said Conor McGregor was just like walking down the middle of the street at times in, in like lower Manhattan and Chris Jones would be like why are you Conor maybe you want to walk on the sidewalk instead of in the middle of the street and Conor was like why? 
Like I never agreed that that was the rule. Like everyone else is just sheep walking on the sidewalk and I'm just going to walk wherever I want. See, that's one where you might be taking a good idea, like a, a little bit too concept. far. No, I agree. I agree. But like the overall, like Chris Jones's overall, uh, uh, takeaway from it was like, wow, I'm just a pussy. And Conor McGregor like does everything that he wants all the time and like just gets away with it. He also had Conor McGregor choke him unconscious, which I think was, you know, uh, contributed to his feeling that like Conor McGregor could kill him at any moment. Okay. Uh, but just like felt unnerved by it, I guess. I, I could see how that might be an unnerving experience all the way around. Did we do anything to sell the fight here? Does this sell the fight? Does any of this like are we more interested now in Khabib McGregor because of we ended the press conference with a long debate about how many languages everybody speaks? Well, I think that most of the people who were even aware of this press conference were already going to buy the fight. Right. Like, I think that that's that's the thing I'm still wondering about right now is it feels to me on all levels like the UFC is on autopilot. Like here's yeah. normally where it would have been a good time to have like either a big fight night event or like a good Fox event, something where you could spend the free event advertising the monster pay-per-view you have coming up. And they did advertise a lot during the Sao Paulo fight night. But again, I'm not sure how many people watch that Sao Paulo fight night, man. Right. Uh, probably all the people who are already in the bubble. I mean, like to hardcore fight fans. Yeah, of course you're going to watch Conor McGregor versus Nermy. Name your fucking price. We're going to be there for that one. But it's the other people you have to get, like where you have to reach out and remind them, hey, remember Conor McGregor? Remember how he was exciting and you got into that whole idea? He's got a fight coming up. It's two weeks. Uh, you know, circle it on the calendars, clear the schedule, be there for that one. You're going to want to watch it on pay-per-view. And it doesn't feel at least like the UFC has really gone all out for that. It seems like it's just relying on like Conor McGregor is going to do all the work himself. And that's yeah. what you saw at this press conference. They basically put him up there on an empty stage. Yeah. No, no fans there to make it feel like it's a big, huge event to really pop every time he says something. Nermy's not giving you much. He's not going to give you much. Right. It's all Conor McGregor got to do it. I mean, he did a really good job of doing that yeah. like in that setting. But I still wonder how you're going to sell two and a half million pay-per-views that way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that they keep kind of quoting that number and like that they're on target for, or on pace for 2.5 million pay-per-view buys. Uh, I guess as a hardcore fan, this press conference, while totally ridiculous and like every time I watch one of these things, it makes me feel kind of worn out by the time it's over. I'm just like, Oh God, thank God that's over. You look worn out. Like in retrospect, the fact that it did seem like Conor McGregor was able to unnerve Habib Nurmagomedov in some ways, like when he brought up Vladimir Putin and asked him to talk some shit to Vladimir Putin, and suddenly Nurmagomedov was like, I don't understand your English. Uh, it does make me feel a little bit more interested to watch it, because like I remember when he did the same thing to Jose Aldo and then knocked him out in 13 seconds. So like, yeah, man, I feel like the plot has thickened a little bit about the the actual physical matchup that will take place in the cage. But like you said, like I was a person that was going to get this fight anyway. I wasn't on, like an on the fence casual fan. If I were, like I don't know that I would have known about this press conference, and I don't know if you got the moment that you were going to put on ESPN, like as as the as the highlight. I do think it's remarkable though that McGregor now like has a new six fight deal with the UFC. Uh, Gets his whiskey on the mat. That his damn whiskey and McGregor Promotions is an actual sponsor of the UFC now, instead of being a thing that he just made up and started saying. And I mean, now, it's basically still a made up thing, because it's not promoting anything, right? But like the whiskey is going to be on the canvas. Like it's almost enough to make you believe in the damn secret, right? Because like <laughs> Conor McGregor made up McGregor Promotions, and then he made some whiskey, and now suddenly like he's a he's he's a sponsor of the UFC. Tell you what we do. We go down to the mall. Right now and look for a parking space. I'm listening. 
we use the secret to make one materialize. If it works, we're all in. Then we have to watch the DVD. I'm not saying we'll read we'll read the book, but we'll watch the DVD. Uh, middle of the afternoon on a Monday, I think we're probably all good there. I think there's probably some open parking <laughs> spots a, at the Southgate spot Mall at the here in Missoula, Montana. Rapidly failing economic downturn mall. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, as we start this final round, I'm just going to run down the main card from Bellator 206 because it's a good fight card right here, man. Your main event is champion versus champion. Uh, Gegard Mousasi against Rory McDonald for the middleweight title. You also got uh, Rampage Jackson against Vanderlei Silva going off uh, at heavyweight in what is referred to as a heavyweight feature bout, uh, which, you know, despite the fact that I think we know all these guys' limitations, we're still going to watch. Douglas Lima versus Andre Korshkov, Aaron Pico against Leandro Higo, and then you got Kerry Melendez against uh, somebody named Dakota Zimmerman there to be the curtain jerker. But like, especially in the, uh, you know, the top three, four fights on this card, this is one that uh, Hashtag would watch. Oh yeah, Hashtag would watch. And therein lies the rub, does it not? Yes, it does. Because we were just talking less than a year ago, I have to say, about how the thing that was cool about Bellator was it that they would put on these cool fights. You didn't necessarily have to follow the damn thing with a magnifying glass like you do the UFC to keep track of the ins and outs. And when you wanted to watch it, there it was, free on the Paramount Network. You could either set the DVR or just click on over there, have yourself a fine Saturday night. Kind of no strings attached. Yeah, Strings are attached now, Ben, because we have to get zone to watch UFC 206, or I'm sorry, Bellator 206. Okay, first of all, I need you to explain something to me. The letters are D-A-Z-N. How is that DAZN? Well, as I told you before we started recording the show, Ben, DAZN actually produced a video, social media video, about how to pronounce DAZN, where they had many athletes who take part in leagues and events that are on DAZN try to pronounce it. Many of them did, in fact, say DAZN or DAZN or however we used to say it. And then at the end, someone nailed it and said DAZN. So, like, not a bad video to try to explain how to pronounce your terrible name. But, uh, I don't know, man. Like, you know I feel you, like I'm up to my neck in streaming services at this point. Do you know how you know you have a bad name for your streaming services? That you got to make a video with a bunch of people who work for your streaming service and they can't pronounce it? That is correct. Uh, also, like... I understand how everybody likes to do fun things with the names of their companies and for a while and it still continues now like the thing to do is to just like capitalize weird shit or sometimes like lowercase weird shit and then continue to enforce that like anytime it's written out as if like we're all supposed to agree that like oh your your name is all in caps anytime we write it fine whatever but I want to draw a line here because this the brain rebels at this, at DAZN, yeah, D-A-Z-N, spelling DAZN, because the sounds that you want me to make just aren't in there. They're just not there, Chad. Yeah. Duh. Okay, you got me. D-A. Duh. Fine. Zone, it's not there. It is not present. Yeah. 
Plus, DAZN sounds like a place you would rent for your kid's birthday party. Yes, absolutely. Would have, we're going like, to go down there. We're going to play some Papa Shot at DAZN. Yeah, they got go-karts. They definitely got go-karts Maybe some big old, big tra- room full of trampolines where you yeah. can kind of jump around. Oh, that'd be nice. An yeah. arcade where the, none of the games really work. They got laser tag at DAZN? Yeah, they probably have like a shitty old school laser tag field where, again, like it might work, but you might also just pay... Five dollars for ten minutes, and it's not going to work. Yeah, or you're going to play some air hockey at the zone, but like the little uh, digital scoreboard at the top of the thing, a couple of the lights are out, so you can't exactly tell what the score is until the thing just shuts off at some point. Uh, is this a bad move for Bellator, Ben? Considering what we were talking about, that like the thing that was cool about Bellator was that it was free on cable, and you could watch it whenever you want. Spike rebranded to the Paramount Network, which I think raised everybody's eyebrows. We weren't totally sure as to what the future of Bellator was going to be with with a uh, you know the Paramount Network. Now suddenly you got to this is probably going to be Bellator's biggest card of the year, and they want you to go chase down to Zone and like I assume sign up for some kind of subscription. Is this a bridge you are willing to cross to watch Bellator two or two oh six? And would it be if you were not like contractually obligated by your job to watch it? See, that's the thing is. Uh- you're asking me, will I cross this bridge? Yeah, because I have to and I can get reimbursed. Uh, would I, as a fan, as much as I want to see some of these fights on this? Man, I don't know. Like, it feels to me like Bellator is in the position where it's climbing up. It's climbing up the ladder. And especially on a weekend like this where you can have this one all to yourself. It's a You have a good fight. You have a better fight card now than the UFC had last two weekends. And this is your opportunity, but I don't feel like Bellator is at the the place right now where it can afford to be saying, you know what? Now we're somewhere else. You got to follow us somewhere else and you got to pay extra for it. Yeah. And it, it's like a fly by night streaming thing that no one has ever heard of. Yeah. Which for all you know, will be gone uh, in a matter of months. Yeah, and I feel like the the UFC's kind of like moved to ESPN Plus starting in 2019, like already got people's hackles up. People were already like, we have to do what? And yeah. sign up for who again? And now suddenly we find out about DAZN. How many how many different streaming services do you pay for? Like like viewing streaming services? Like in total? Yeah. Well, I have the Netflix. Okay. I've got Amazon Prime. Okay, I got those. They, as you know, they signed me up for without... Asking me, and yep. it turned out to be an extremely cagey move. Then you find move. out the Americans is on there, and you're like, okay. Yep. Uh, so I got those. I got regular satellite TV still because I got to watch Fox Sports 1. Dish Network, that's what you got? I got Dish I, Network. I got that too. I've dabbled in. I actually just signed up for ESPN Plus because my beloved Montana Grizzlies were on the road playing Western Illinois, the Leathernecks, two weeks ago out of the Missouri Valley Conference. And Missouri Valley has a deal with ESPN+. Plus, So the only way you could watch it was if you signed up for uh, the free trial, the free seven-day trial. And you figured I'm going to need this anyway? Yep, I signed up for it. I actually went on and tried to cancel my trial membership after I'd watched the game. Couldn't figure out how to do it. So eventually I was like... You're saying it's not very easy to unsubscribe? Unlike the Breakfast Champions newsletter? So eventually I was just like, shit, I guess I'm going to let it ride to 2019. (laughs) Uh, That's how that gets you. I'm kind of on and off with the fight pass. I can't remember if I have that right now or not. As you know, I'm kind of against the idea that we all sign up for fight pass and then just pay $9.99 for it every single month, even though there aren't very many live events on there. Uh, I believe I'm off WWE Network at the moment, although I did have it for a while. So I guess my answer is a shitload, Ben. Yeah. I've also dabbled in Sling TV mm-hmm. now and again. Okay. How about Hulu? You do Hulu? I don't have Hulu, but like okay. it kind of eats at me, to be honest with you. <laughs> There's some nights you're laying there awake in bed and going, I should get, 
I should get Hulu. Well, I want to watch Atlanta, which I haven't been able to watch. It's on Hulu. It's uh, fantastic. We've we've got some good friends that are in the the television show making business, and all their shows are on Castle Hulu. Rock. They Castle, Castle Rock, Rock. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, man, like it's crossed my mind, but it, but like, oh, you know what else I have? Apple Music. I have Apple Music, which okay. is it's kind of like Spotify. You can get any song you want and download it to your phone, which is actually kind of awesome. But yeah, man, I, I like I think. As evidenced by the fact that I can't even fucking remember them all, I have a lot. And see, I think most people are in a similar boat. And so when Bellator comes along and says to you, like, hey, we're the number two MMA organization. Like, we should be feeling grateful that you want to watch us at all. But now we're going to make you go through this streaming service that has a name that doesn't make sense. The the feeling that I get is kind of like, it's too much, man. We've reached a point where I just can't. I can't with the streaming services anymore. Not everybody can have their own damn streaming service. Yeah, It's just fragmenting the audience so much. And it feels like everybody, like especially in Bellator's case, it feels like you are moving away from the let's try to get better and more attention and like try to get narrow that gap with the UFC and now you're moving into like the cashing out phase a little bit and before you are really ready to be there and as a viewer it just feels like I don't you really got to make a strong case to me for me to add one more streaming service now. oh I agree I agree uh, and the only way it makes sense to me is is if internally the writing is kind of on the wall at Paramount Network like if you think you're going to be on Paramount Network for forever for the foreseeable future, I think you stay there. Like the only way that DAZN makes sense to me is if internally at Bellator people are like, ah, uh, we're not going to be on Paramount forever for, for for very much longer. Can we talk about the fight for one minute? <laughs> By all means. Who you like here, Rory McDonald or Gegar Mousasi? Have you thought about it enough? Uh, I mean, it's hard for me to go against Gegar Mousasi in his own weight class. Yeah. I mean, McDonald could pull it off, though. He could. Like, he, he could. It would not be a huge surprise to see him become the champ champ over there at, at uh, Bellator. Uh, if he does that, how do we think of him? Is he the top welterweight in the world? Is he in the same conversation as the, your Tyron Woodleys of the world? You know, I just wrote a thing about this because if you think about it, if he goes up there, first of all, he already has a win over Tyron Woodley. Yes. So... Uh, I'll beat your ass unless you Roy McDonald, and then maybe I won't. Maybe that, you will win a decision. Is that the B side to I'll beat your ass? Yeah, that's that's the uh, the the remix. Uh, is I'll beat your ass unless you're right. It's like Rory McDonald's going to put out some weird ambient synth pop where he talks about that. The first line that you hear is Rory McDonald's voice going. Usually I don't do this. <laughs> uh, if but if if he goes up there and he beats Gegard Mousasi, then he has claimed the Bellator welterweight title, the Bellator middleweight title, and took it off a guy who exited the UFC on a winning streak and who had a plausible claim to maybe being the best middleweight in the UFC when he left. And he went like up a weight class and beat that guy. And then he's going to return to the tournament, the Bellator welterweight Grand Prix, in which he puts his belt up for grabs in every single round of the tournament. If he goes through all that and still emerges as the champion afterwards, I think that will really put some pressure on our kind of like uh, mode of thinking about Bellator versus the UFC where we kind of think of it as, oh, you exited the UFC on two losses. Therefore, we kind of closed the book on you. And if he uh, can come through all of that with two belts still, I think it's going to challenge a lot of those assumptions. Now that you lay 
lay it all out like that, that being Rory McDonald's schedule, mm-hmm. that's amazing. Yeah. And like, if you are Bellator, you motherfucking need a dude like Rory McDonald who's going to be both good and do all of that shit. Yeah. And like the guy where you got to talk him out of trying to get into the heavyweight Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad it's all only going to happen on DAZN. Which I feel like is like fucking Krypton. Or I'm, something. St- I'm still saying Dazzin. Fuck it. Alternate universe. I'm not going along with this. All right, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Chad, did you see that uh, with his rear naked choke victory on the prelims in the UFC Sao Paulo, Charles Dobronx Oliveira is now the UFC all time submission victories leader? Hard to believe, but yeah, I did see that. I'm just saying, eventually I assume maybe there's a point when I'll be able to accept this as being like a statistical fact. But right now, and for the foreseeable future, whenever somebody tries to tell me that like the answer to the trivia question, who has the most submission victories in UFC history is Charles Oliveira. I'm just saying a part of my brain is just going to go, nope, nope, can't be true. true. That cannot be true. Just Just saying. saying. Uh, Ben, I'm going to read this quote from George St. Pierre, who popped up in an interview with Fansided this past week. I love to read it because it's vintage George, and I think the people will know what I'm talking about when I get through with it. Okay. Here's his quote. I have to choose carefully what is my next move. For at this point, I am with cementing my legacy, and it is not a straight line. I have to check what I can gain, what I can lose. That is why when I fought Michael Bisping, it was a win-win situation from both sides. If I were to lose, I lose, but if I win, I win big, so it was good. Fighting Tyron Woodley right now, now that he has won his last fight, it elevates his stock a little bit, but it's still not a complete win-win situation for me. This week, I guess I'm just saying, George, you can just say that you're fighting Conor McGregor. (laughs) Like, you could just say, I'm not fighting Tyron Woodley because I'm fighting Conor McGregor next win, lose, or draw against Habib Nurmagomedov. I'm just saying. Just saying. Vintage George, though. How you start off a quote with, I have to choose carefully what is my next move for at this point. <laughs> like, like a bard from the Middle Ages. If I win, I win. But if I lose, I lose. I don't know, man. Anyway, uh, we're going to be back next week to start talking about the big banana. UFC 229, Conor McGregor versus Habib Nurmagomedov. Probably break down all the stuff that happens at Bellator 206. Also, I think everybody's going to want to go ahead and grab a copy of the Sisters Brothers. If oh, yeah. you haven't done that already and start yep. preparing for the big book club. And uh, do I need to remind you guys what happens when we hit 900 patrons on the old Patreon? Yeah, I see a, a day of reckoning. I don't, I don't think it'll happen. That's the only thing I can take any solace in at this point. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. We're... Where are your bedazzled jeans? Are they in storage? Do you know how you go and get them? Yeah, I'm going to have to get those out of the storage unit. Okay. I have a storage unit. All it says on the uh, on the door is 2009. That's where all my 2009 gear is at. Yeah. Probably got some uh, some Four loco and some uh, some other caffeinated alcohol beverages. Now we're talking. Too. We'll get some sparks. Yeah, some sparks in there. Original sparks, sparks. Some bedazzled jeans. There'll be Axe body spray everywhere. Day of wreck. Oh yeah, you walk in the door of my 2009 storage unit and you just get sprayed from the top down with Vax body spray. I have it, I have it rigged up, automated. Kind of like works. A, kind of a booby trap. Yes, it's a booby trap, man. It's a booby trap. <laughs>